Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi, thanks for joining us today. Uh, We are very excited that you are here because you're about to hear a really cool conversation that I recently had with Dr. Tanya Israel, who is a professor at University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, She is a professor of counseling psychology. So I don't know, maybe a month, month or two ago, a friend of mine forwarded a link to some information about Tanya's most recent book, which is called Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. And my friend sent it because she knows the work that we do is about civil discourse and about kind of bridging ideological divides. And so I looked at it and I read the book and I thought, I really want to talk to this person. Uh, Tanya's book is full of skills and strategies, as she says, for conversations that work. And it's not false advertising. She has laid out tips and ideas about how to improve the kind of conversations that you have and why it's important to do that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I am 100% sure that when it is over, you will have some ideas and some tips that you can apply probably in the next couple of hours to the people in your life to improve the kind of dialogue you have with them. So enjoy. If I were to walk into a bookstore, which doesn't happen all that often these days. But if I were to walk into a bookstore, if I were searching for it on Amazon, what I might see is beyond your bubble. But in fact, you have a title that's that's actually longer than that. And it is Skills and Strategies for Conversations that Work, Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. And I think there's a lot that's really important there including the fact that you're talking about skills and strategies. So there are a lot of people writing on political polarization right now uh, about tribalism, that kind of thing. You're actually saying practically, I want to give people tips on how to address this, not just, not just understand what's happening or complain about what's happening, but how do we actually address this? Um, And you talk about conversations at work. I think that's really important. So I definitely want to get into what all of that means. But if we could, let's let's kind of start here. You tell a very personal story at the beginning of the book. You talk about after college, you worked as a pregnancy counselor and about your experience day to day going into a place where you knew you were going to meet resistance. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it relates to the book and the subject matter of the book? Absolutely. This is part of, I think, what started me on a journey of being interested in dialogue across political lines. Um, after college, I was working in a center that, um, that did provide um, abortions as part of its services. And so when I was going into work, you know, I would walk by the protesters and they would be, uh, you know, yelling at us and chanting and holding signs. And, and I was really concerned, not not about myself as much as about the women who were coming in for our services, not all of which were abortion services. And so just all the women who were coming in, I, I felt like it was, they were in a stressful situation and it was making it so much more stressful for them. And so I felt very protective of them. And 
after a while, I, and, and I would feel, frankly, kind of angry at the protesters. And so after a while, I, I got tired of being angry. And I felt like my anger wasn't actually helping the women who I was trying to help. And I heard a piece on the radio about this group called Common Ground that was bringing together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other in St. Louis. And this was the olden days before the internet. And so I, you know, looked up their number or something. I don't know how I found them, but I did. And I talked to them on the phone and I told them I was interested. And they, they mailed me, you know, all kinds of materials that they had. And so then I, and, and at the time I was, um, at this point, I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I grew up. And I, I reached out to the director of the local crisis pregnancy center, which was a pro-life um, center. And I said, you know, do you want to get together and talk? And so we did. So we, we talked about this idea and she was game. And I said, you know, I can reach out to the pro-choice people if you can reach out to the pro-life people. We ended up bringing people together. We would meet at the library. And not everybody wanted to be part of it, certainly. But for the people who did, and for myself, it was such a meaningful experience because I, I got an opportunity to really hear from people who were pro-life and hear about their perspectives. And they, they weren't necessarily the same people who were out there protesting. And, um, or at least they weren't saying the same things, you know, as they might say when they are protesting. But I realized that from my values and my experiences, the conclusions I had come to in terms of uh, reproductive rights was absolutely appropriate. But coming from their values and their experiences, the conclusions that they had come to really made sense. But I really needed to hear it from that. I couldn't evaluate their conclusions based on my values. What I love about that story is that I think there's so much people in our audience can relate to, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be in that context. But the context, the key parts of that context, I think, are the feeling of unease, right? And, and nervousness, not just about yourself, but about how it affects the people around you. Um, and, and instead of just walking away from that or kind of wallowing in that anger, which I think we can have a tendency to do and, and remind ourselves how right we are, you turned and said, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe there's more to this story and I really need to do it. And I think this is a really key part of when you talk in the book about what dialogue is. There's an investment on our part in not just listening, but being willing to care about what somebody else is thinking. So let's talk just for a moment, if we can, about dialogue and how dialogue differs from discourse or debate. I mean, dialogue's a pretty specific thing, the way you lay it out. Sure. And, and let me mention um, that that piece you're talking about, about really wanting to hear what somebody else's view is. I talk in the book about intellectual humility. And this is something I hadn't really come across before I was working on the book, but it's, it's, I describe it as being righteous without being self-righteous, yeah. you know, because righteousness is really about, you know, um, integrity and your values, but right, self-righteous, I think, is where we so often get to in these, you know, feeling like ours is the only 
um, perspective that has any value and that we're interested in hearing. And so intellectual humility really puts us in a place of curiosity. Like, I mean, that experience that I had in dialogue, it didn't change anything about how I felt about reproductive rights, but it changed so much about how I felt about people who disagree with me on it. Yeah. And, and that's the opportunity that we have. And, and so, yes, it's true. Like you're talking about, okay, well, this is dialogue. It's not... It's not some of the things that we see on TV where people are just arguing back and forth and they're just wanting their sound bites to be heard. And it's not even debate. Um, it's not even something where we're trying to win the argument by making the best points. And it's certainly not, you know, this diatribe of just like one person spewing what they have to say and, and you know, just, just, um, being exposed to all the venom that's there. It's really, a, you know, when I ask people what interests them about dialogue, because I really started, before I did the book, I, I started by doing these workshops. Yeah. And I would ask people, what brings you to the workshop? Why are you here? And there were some very specific motivations that came up time and time again. A lot of people have someone in their lives who they want to stay connected with, but there's a, you know, difference of view in politics. Some people said, you know, I just can't understand how people think the way they do or vote the way they do or act the way they do. Some people say, you know, I want to find common ground. And, and then certainly some people do want to persuade other people. These were things that came up really commonly. And diatribe and debate, those are not actually going to meet those goals. That in order to meet those goals, really what we need is understanding. Mm -hmm. And and so the way that I present dialogue is really is a way to get to that point of understanding and maintaining that connection with others. And when we engage in dialogue, as I was reading through the book, one of the things I kept thinking about was, and you call it investment, a dialogue, being in dialogue with other people requires an investment. But that's what it struck me all along is being intentional about how you're doing something. So much of what I think, and, and I'm someone who spends my life thinking about people talking to each other, but I still think a lot of what I'm engaged in when talking to other people wouldn't rise to the level of dialogue, right? Um, so there's this investment of time, of preparation. And if I follow the sort of what's laid out in the book, um, there's a sense in which it could feel like, I mean, you at one point compare it to weight training, right? Um, you, you don't start by lifting 80 pound weights if you want to lift 80 pound weights and you can only <laughs> lift 30 pound weights. You work up to it, you figure out how to do it, you get comfortable with it. Um, as I thought through this, I was thinking about my own experiences in contexts where I would want to use this. And I actually did try out some of these things on my kids. Um, yeah, which was fun. It was a lot of fun. And, but what I think is like any investment, there's also a risk, right? You make yourself vulnerable. You, um, it can go badly just because you invest time and effort into it doesn't mean that it's going to be, it's going to be successful. But if you are intentional about it and you set up the circumstances, right, what you can gain out of it is more than in a debate where you just win, whether you're connected to the argument or not, you just described a whole bunch of things you can get out of it. The, the payoff for that investment uh, connection, human connection. Um, you say it, it's not just a matter of finding common ground necessarily. And even if we're not having this kind of, if we're not 
in dialogue about political um, issues, just using these tips can make us better parents, can make us better coworkers, can make us better friends. So what are some of those key tips? You talked about intellectual humility already, kind of coming to the table without um, the, the self-righteousness, right? Or righteous right. indignation. Exactly. So, so that sense of curiosity, I think, is probably one of the, you know, is, is one of the most important foundations to all of this. Really, you have to want to know, you have to want to understand the other person. Uh, some of the skills, and, and I come to this as a, someone who's a psychologist and a professor, and I've been teaching helping skills for a long time. So after the 2016 election, when it was so clear how divided we were, I thought, oh, I know some things that might be helpful here. And people were saying we should be reaching across this divide, but I wasn't hearing a lot of how to do it. So I try to get really practical about it. And so in terms of practical skills, active listening is a really powerful tool. So active listening is what some people call listening to understand instead of listening to respond. So one of the things that we need to do with that is First of all, give people an opportunity to speak without being interrupted. So giving people the space to do that. And while they're speaking, instead of in your mind thinking about the thing that you're going to say that will, you know, be the zinger and will contrast what they're saying and make your point so well, instead of doing that, trying to really focus on what are they saying? And really understanding that. And so then when you respond, instead of responding with your view, you respond by summarizing back something of what you've heard them say. And the beauty of that kind of reflection is that it can both make sure that you actually understood them because you're saying something back, oh, so this is what I'm hearing, or so you're thinking this. And if you've got it wrong, then they can correct you or they can elaborate on it. But the other thing that it does is it helps them to feel like you not only understand them, but you really care what they yeah. have to say. Yeah. And so it's, it's really a wonderful thing in terms of building that connection. I love what you say about uh, it's more important to simply be present for the conversation than it is to be brilliant. Because I do think particularly when we're talking about important political issues or any issues that are important to us, we get so hung up on, I wanna tell you what I think, right? You talk you know, about the zinger or the gotcha or whatever, that's particularly in political situations, but we feel so strongly about, no, I have to make myself heard. And this really requires a kind of, not just patience, but um, self-control to stop and listen and the focus be hear what the other person is saying, even if you risk forgetting what you want to say or the moment passes where whatever it is you want to say. Um, that's the piece I think when you describe various tips and strategies where I think a lot of people could probably feel like that is unnatural in a way. Um, you mentioned somebody who did talk to their teenage daughter and the teenage daughter called her out and said, I know what you're doing here, um, which I can imagine my daughter doing. Is, is that something, so when I think about that, I think the best way to practice that is with somebody that I know really well and also be willing to say to this person, hey, I wanna practice this with you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the ideal in a way. 
is there a sense in which people feel that that's artificial or, you know, having an explicit structure that we're thinking about, it's unnatural and you're somehow, I don't, it's not lying, you know, but I mean, do you, in these workshops that you run, do you find people saying, I'm not really being me, this is weird, you know, that kind of thing? What people are most concerned about with that is that, that it will sound weird to other people, you know, that, that, oh, if I, like, isn't it weird just to repeat back something that somebody said? Like, who, who does that? But if you try it, and I think you're right, you know, trying it, and, and I always recommend this, in really low-stakes situations. So don't try it first in the big conflict, that, you know, or the person that you're expecting to have big conflict with, but try it first with somebody, even a friend who you're just having a regular conversation with, they're talking about a problem maybe, and you reflect something back to them that they said. And what I found is that people love to be heard. You know, they they love to be understood. They love to know that somebody's listening. And it's also striking to me how seldom we give that to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when you said that, that people think it's going to sound weird. It, I was thinking exactly that. Maybe it sounds weird because we're not used to people listening to one another. We're not used to being heard. Um, we had a couple of weeks ago in our newsletter, we had a story, and I think it was down in Florida or somewhere, where there was a boat captain, a charter boat captain, who said he wasn't going to, he was a Republican. He said, I'm not going to allow Democrats on my boat anymore. Um, you know, I should be able to decide who I let on my boat. I should be able to decide who I serve, that sort of thing. But if you read all the way through the article, it wasn't just about political disagreement. He said he was really tired of people making assumptions about him because he was conservative. And I think, and, and he, you know, implicitly was saying, I just want somebody to understand me. I want somebody to think about what I want and not see me as this crazy person, you know? And we hear that over and over again from people saying, I just want to feel heard. You don't have to agree with me, but I want to feel like I'm heard. And that happens less today. I think you would, you would agree with this, at least in part, that happens less today in part because of the way we consume information. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a couple things um, make us dis- predisposed to seeing people in these sort of cartoon cutouts, you know, that, that we're not really seeing people fully. And some of it is, you know, this 24-hour news cycle where they've got to have something interesting on. And so when they have these conversations, they're really heated. And also, there are the people who are spokespeople for these issues and, and are sometimes at the most extreme. Most people are not at the most extreme on any of these issues. And then there's and I cite you know, all this research, there's decades of research showing that we tend to distort our views of people on the other side. We tend to see um, people as being farther apart from us than they really are in terms of their views. So, so I think all of that, but social media also really contributes to this. We're, we're, the, the communication we're having with people on social media is not a conversation. And it's not something that's likely to promote understanding. It's very one-way conversation. It, it doesn't really help us to see people fully. And 
this is what, you know, somebody asked, well, what, what's the comment I can make on somebody's Facebook post that's going to make a difference? I said, the best comment you can make is, hey, can we set up a time to talk about this? Yeah. It's not the place to have the conversation. It's the place to maybe set the conversation time, maybe, you know, some guidelines and that kind of thing. You focus on the importance of face-to-face um, and we can use technology. We have to use technology for that now, but that if, you know, in an ideal, the ideal would be to actually be looking directly at someone in person so that you can see, you can always pick up more about somebody's gestures, their facial expressions, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, this is, so I, I totally agree with the piece about social media. There are things that social media can do for us, but having the kind of constructive understanding and and productive conversation and dialogue that you're describing, I think is not necessarily one of those things that happens there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that also is really important is about thinking about our motivation, right? So if we're on social media and we want to get our point of view out, that's not the same as having the motivation to have a dialogue with somebody or have a conversation. So one thing you say is that, and, and I just, like the way this frames thinking about conversation. It's an opportunity, not a mandate, right? So there's really important stuff going on in the world. And yes, we do want to find common ground and we don't want to be divided and we don't want to be polarized. Um, Or I don't want to be, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, But that doesn't mean that I have to go out and have this kind of dialogue with every person out there. And if I look at it that way, it comes with all this obligation and burden. Whereas if I say it's an opportunity, it's an opportunity to talk to someone and to learn more about them and have that kind of understanding. And hopefully the reverse will happen with that person and me, they will understand me better. Then I think that just totally changes the framework to say it's an opportunity and I can choose and I can choose when I leave it and I can choose when I don't do it. Exactly. And, and I think that's a really important um, boundary for people to have for themselves, to know that they can make those choices about when they want to have those conversations. Sometimes you just don't have the energy for it. You know, sometimes what you really need is just somebody who's going to agree with you and you get to vent and they're like right on and they support you. And and it's important to know that. It's important to be self-aware in terms of what is it that you are trying to get out of this conversation. You know, I talked about motivations and probably one of the things that I learned the most from talking to people or listening to people about their experiences is that people have more than one motivation. So they want to connect and they want to understand, but they also want to feel validated and, and they want to, you know, have, have their perspective mirrored back to them. Well, you're not going to get all of those things in every conversation. So I always say it's helpful to have the people you can go to when you need to talk to people who agree with you. And then you might want to have a very different kind of conversation with the people who don't agree with you. And it's also important that if people feel like they're in a situation where the other person is not interested in dialogue, um, or if they feel like it's a situation where it's actually unsafe, you know, then it, then it makes it very hard to have dialogue. So, so I, I think it's important for people to know their motivations and also be able to assess the situation to know if this is the appropriate time for this. 
Yeah. And sometimes maybe you need to say, no, I'm not going to have this conversation or we're never going to have this conversation because I'm assessing both about myself or something about the other person. We're never going to have the right set of circumstances to have the kind of productive dialogue. There are people who are actually very upset about the idea of dialogue too. (laughs) So, you know, they feel like, oh, that's not what we should be doing. We should just be fighting for our side and we shouldn't be sitting down with them and all of this. And, and so for those people, I say, well, this is not for you. Yeah. Um, that's okay. I'm not going to argue with people and try to convince them that everybody should be doing this. But that I think that there are enough people who would like to be doing this, but need some help and support to get there. And one of the really encouraging things is that there's a lot of groups out there that are actually setting up opportunities for people to have dialogue. So I I think that there's so much that's really encouraging that's showing us that there are people who want to do this, but the people who don't want to, we we don't need to bring them into it. Yeah, you know, we've had on Facebook um, in our advertising, we talk about civil conversation. We do have people say the time for that is over, right? Like we're at a point where that's not true. And I'm sure there are people who feel that way, but let's hope not everybody feels that way. You have in the book and something you've used in workshops, a flow chart, um, which the title of it is something like the, the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country. I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you, you give that, you know, some qualification to everything, but one of the very first so the very first question on that flowchart, I'm going to see if I can find it really quickly because I thought it was so great. Um, I actually was reading it and I started laughing out loud because I thought, yeah, I mean, that's probably a good way to approach this. So the first question is, do you want to have a conversation with someone who holds political views different from your own? And if the answer is no, it says move along. This chart is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but But to be serious about that, I think... Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, we shouldn't force people into dialogue because it's not going to go well if we're doing that. On the other hand, if somebody says they do want to do it um, or they do want to have that kind of a conversation, what is important, I think, about the way you describe the strategies you describe is that it's also not it's not likely to kind of end the way we hope it will if we just go into it like any other conversation. We have to do some some table setting a little bit, right? We have to have the right circumstances. We have to examine our motivation. We have to come into it with intellectual humility. We have to be engaged, be willing to engage in active listening. And we have to consider all these other things about the other person. Context matters a lot. So we may just flatten, I think this all the time when I look at sort of political back and forth, we flatten people into a position and we don't think about their history. We don't think about um, their commitments. We don't think about their circumstances. You talk about the politics of pizza at one point, which I thought was a really great way to give some background on that and to think about, so, so what's the politics of pizza? If we're sharing a pizza with somebody, we've we've got to negotiate things sometimes, and we've got to agree on what we want. Uh, so, so we're assuming you're not doing a half and half pizza. But sometimes, you know, everybody's just coming to it, and they, you know, it's easy. Everybody wants the same thing. But sometimes, uh, maybe someone's gluten free, or maybe somebody's allergic to dairy. You know, or there there's different kinds of things, or people just have different preferences. But, and, and so sharing a pizza, it's like, 
it's like government, it's like politics, because you're making decisions that affect everyone. And somehow we have to come together around these and figure things out. But, but what if one person is paying for the pizza? Then do they get to decide what's on it and the other person doesn't? What if they've got a history together? People often talk to me about having these conversations with family members. And but you've got the whole history of your relationship with that person and the different roles in the family and all of that comes into it. So it's not, it's not necessarily a vacuum where we're having this conversation. There's all of those other things that come into play. Yeah. And, and something like I have a preference for pepperoni versus being gluten-free. Those are different levels of sort of commitments that you have to keep in mind. Um, exactly. Yeah. So another thing you talked earlier about, we always think, or we, we historically, there's research to support this, um, or data to support this. We tend to think people who disagree with us are far more polarized than they actually are. They're at more extreme positions. What I liked about that too, was that you said, um, it's not just the people we disagree with who we need to have this kind of dialogue with, or that it's valuable to have this kind of dialogue with people we agree with uh, in the main are also good possible partners for that kind of dialogue because it helps us refine what we're, we're thinking. So if I, if I agree with someone, what kinds of conversation in general, I agree with someone, what kinds of dialogue might I have with them that, that helps me practice these skills? You know, it's amazing the assumptions that we make about people's views because we find ourselves we're, you know, in, in an event maybe where it's all people who are supporting an organization or we just sort of assume people in our social circles or in our faith community have similar views. And to actually say, oh, you know, tell me how you came to that perspective. You know, what made you decide to come to this event? And where did your views come from? Uh, that I think is a great conversation to have whether people agree or disagree with us, knowing more about sort of what shaped them. It's, it's frankly, I think, a more interesting conversation than just, uh, you know, repeating all the things that we've heard about the statistics or the arguments, you know, to support our side of things. Like, I want to know about people's life histories and family histories and where they grew up and how that's contributed to the views that they have now. Yeah, you you said before having kind of a curiosity about people and about um, their backgrounds and all of these other things, not just waiting for the moment where you can give your own opinion. In fact, uh, you you talk about the fact that people get worried about when do I get to talk? When do I get to say things? So if we've done the table setting the right way or the you know sort of context setting the right way, and we've you know listened actively and we've reflected what we have heard and we've taken into account all these things and we have brought intellectual humility to this. What, what kinds of strategies should we employ when it's our turn to talk? I mean, I would think just having thought all of those things through forces us to be a little more careful and a little more thoughtful about the things we say because we've put ourselves in the position of thinking about the other person, making them feel safe, trying to understand them. So that's going to have some impact on how I speak. But, but what kinds of strategy and tips can I apply to my own giving my opinion in, in this kind of a dialogue? 
Sure. I, I think probably the greatest mistake that people make is thinking that the argument that they can make, you know, the, um, the information that they can put out there, the perspective that they can share is the key to changing somebody else's view, you know? And, and so it's like you were saying before, it can feel really uh, unnatural to not do that because it's what we're inclined to do. So I think the first thing is to just uh, reevaluate the importance of sharing that. And then to say, okay, well, what can I share instead? What can I say that can be meaningful? And I think in terms of either persuasion or just trying to share with somebody where you're coming from, helping them to understand how you got to your view can be really meaningful and, and interesting to other people without being threatening, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, this is what it was like for me growing up and this is how I, you know, I came to, I came to view this or I encountered this person along the way in my life and they helped me shift my views about it or, oh yeah, you know, I've seen things in different ways over my lifetime and this is where I am, but, but that journey of how you got there is so much more um, important, I think, to share than the destination where you are right now. So I think I'm gonna, um, we'll, put, we'll put information about the book and everything else in the show notes, but I wanna say right now, having read the book, and again, having, as someone who thinks carefully, professionally about this kind of thing, I just think our listeners ought to consider finding some folks that they're either in book groups with and in faith-based groups, that kind of thing, getting the book and going through it together and using it and actually very explicitly thinking about all this, even if it feels a little unnatural, because I think there is so much that we can learn about one another and, and practicing that and, and applying it in other situations. I really like the idea that if we if we can be in dialogue with one another in the ways that you described, it's not about persuading. It's not about changing people's minds alone. That might happen, but we do need to be, we need to be realistic about what power we have to do that. The idea that we can be connected even when we disagree and that it makes it harder for us to be torn apart is really important. So as you think about, um, because I think probably all of us are thinking about this at some level, as you think about the election season and all the different things that are going on in this country in 2020, um, you know, and, and with your experience and your academic background, if you had some, apart from getting your book, which I'm recommending, you don't have to recommend that, I'm recommending that, um, what would you recommend for people as they're thinking about the next few months and also trying to avoid being in situations where even short of feeling unsafe, they just feel nervous. They, you know, you talk about all the kind of physical things that can happen mm -hmm. when you're in a situation where you're disagreeing with people, you know, people's hands get sweatier and they, you know, they start breathing heavier. They, they, they feel angry, you know, what can we do to make the next few months and the time after the election more productive and less stressful for ourselves? I think that's a great question. I think breathing is the metaphor for our time right now on so many levels. Um, I, breathing, as I talk about it in the book, is about how to, how to calm yourself, how to just um, shift out of that fight, flight, or freeze mode that we get into when we feel a sense of threat. 
it's also a moment where you know there are people on ventilators due to covid in the with the where where there are wildfires and smoke it's you know the air quality's been a challenge you know people you know the i can't breathe piece of um of black lives matter i mean breathing i think is so essential um to our well-being and doing taking it then as a tool for ourselves to be able to get into a place where we can feel comfortable being around other people. I mean, whether it's in the same room or in the same country as people who have really different views. I like that. And, and it made me think about the imagery of the bubble, which the book is beyond your bubble. There, we are probably all familiar with this idea of being in our own filter bubbles and surrounding ourselves with uh, things that we agree with, not pushing ourselves to hear disagreement. But you talk about the bubble, not just in that way, but also in being fragile. Um, bubbles are very fragile. And so even if we feel comfortable in them, they're fragile. But when you talk about breathing, you talk about literally the image of imagining yourself blowing bubbles like kids bubbles right and how that can help you regulate breath so that as you get nervous or you find your emotions starting to you know ratchet up during a conversation imagining that and kind of blowing the bubble and the the practice of that absolutely i um in in the workshop that i do i have an activity where you know i have people sort of imagine being in a really conflictual conversation and noticing what happens physically. And people talk about, you know, they can, they can feel their muscles tighten and their breath gets shallow and they feel flushed and all of this. And then I actually hand out little bubbles. And, you know, then I say, okay, blow, well, we can't do this right now. But, but usually people blow bubbles and it's the most beautiful thing to see this room full of bubbles. And then I say, how do you feel now? And it's a noticeable change. It's a noticeable shift for people. So being aware of what's going on for us physically and then finding ways of calming that, that stress. Part of the reason that I wrote the book is because not only is this, um, uh, this divide affecting us you know, politically and interpersonally, but, but actually it's affecting our health. And this stress that people are feeling about it is really affecting us. So whether or not we're in dialogue, we need to find ways of reducing our stress. It's, it's harming us um, physically. And someone told me recently that they were reading the book and it was helping them to de-stress, just even reading the book. And I thought that's so good because they were anticipating going into a situation with, with a family member and they said it just made them feel better. So, you know, whether it's the book or whether it's some other tool that people can use just to try to reduce that stress, I think is so important because I, I think we need all of us to, to be at our best and to be healthy. And, and I would want that for everybody in this country and the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us outside of the book, if people want to follow the work that you're doing, if they want to follow you, what's the best place for them to do that? What should they be looking at? 
Great. So go to tanyaisrael.com if you want information about the book and lots of other projects that I'm doing. Also, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at BYB Dialogue. So like for Beyond Your Bubble Dialogue. There's also a uh, Facebook group for Beyond Your Bubble. And um, all of those will help not only um, for people who want to know about the book, but just want to know about dialogue and are interested and I share, you know, things that other people are talking about. There really is a community and network of people and organizations that are trying to bring people together across the divide. And so I just invite people to be part of that. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it with Tanya. You know, a lot of times in this space, in the podcast, I talk about how I might apply something that we've discussed to my own conversations. Because Tanya's book uh, and our conversation are filled with tips, there's all kinds of things that you can think about applying. I can just tell you that I have definitely tried many of the tips that Tanya suggested And as a person who I think is pretty conscientious about the kinds of conversations I have, I still found lots that I could employ in my day-to-day conversations. What I want to just talk about briefly is in her book, one of the things Tanya highlights, and we talked a little bit about it in the conversation, is the importance of thinking about dialogue And the value it has outside of persuading people of your point of view. So uh, she cautions us to be realistic about our prospects for changing people's minds. But that's not the only reason to engage in dialogue with people. She noted that, you know, having conversations that work helps us to change not only ourselves, but to change the world around us. You know, it helps us understand ideas and the people who have those ideas. It helps us deepen connections between each other. And sometimes, you know, it can even help heal relationships. So there's a lot of good reasons to have a conversation that's productive, even if you're not going to change someone's mind. And I think that's one of the most important things I took away from my conversation and reading Tanya's book. I hope you have an opportunity to take something important into your conversations. And I appreciate you listening. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.